You're listening to an Economy Matters podcast produced by the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. The Federal Open Market Committee concluded a two-day meeting earlier today. The pace of job today. growth has been strong. Downside risks to the outlook for the, the number economy. of Fed officials. The shadow banking system is large. We've come a long way since the darkest day of the financial crisis. Hello, and welcome to the Economy Matters podcast for the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. I'm Jessica Washington, representing our Retail Payments Risk Forum at the Atlanta Fed, and I'm your host for today. This episode is the third in a series spotlighting our strategic priority of promoting safer payments innovation. And the Atlanta Fed does play several roles in the payments industry. We are an operator, supervisor, researcher, and our district is also a major hub for domestic payments. Approximately 70% of U.S. payments flow through Atlanta, earning us uh, the metro area the name Transaction Alley. So I'm pleased to be here today. I'm joined by Andrea Donker with uh, the Senior Vice President uh, of Consumer Practices and Regulatory Relations at PayPal. Andrea, thanks so much for being with me today. Thank you for having me, Jessica. And before we begin, I should say that our views and our conversation here today is uh, the expression of the presenters alone and do, do not reflect the views of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta or the Fed system or of PayPal. All right, so let's let's start uh, chatting about what we have on the agenda today. Uh, the Atlanta Fed uh, has a high priority initiative to promote safer payments innovation. And then alongside that, we also prioritize efforts to enhance economic mobility and resilience, and particularly for those uh, minority and low and moderate income families and individuals. So, you know, let me just paint a picture. What if everyone who was seeking a job could get a good job? What if everyone could advance their career and make more money and uh, could have convenient and vibrant neighborhood? And uh, consider this, what if everyone, uh, when life dealt us unexpected shocks, could weather those shocks and easily recover? Both those things happened, we'd have economic mobility and resilience and a way to get ahead when times are good and then bounce back when times are rough. And so research has actually shown lately, uh, over the past four decades really, uh, upward mobility has eroded. And Americans born at the lower end of the income scale are increasingly unlikely to climb that scale. And so we do believe that systemic racism and then structures and institutions that restrict opportunity based on someone's color, skin color, or family connections, maybe their geography, we believe those are economic issues at the Atlanta Fed. And when people and communities are limited in reaching their full potential, we all lose. And because we have smaller economies and siloed economies sometimes, we would have a less overall uh, resilient economy. So, Andrea, you are an esteemed leader in financial services, law, and compliance. And as we've gotten to know each other, I know we both share a passion for inclusion. And I just kind of want to hear a little bit about how your experience has led you to think about these economic issues. Thank you for that, Jessica. I, I mean, you know, your intro hit it right, right on on the the head. You know, the metrics around the lack of inclusion today it's staggering, right? So globally, there's a, a stat that 1.7 billion people today are living outside 
of traditional financial systems. In the U.S., it's somewhere around 185 million people who struggle to get by every month. And you mentioned uh, in your opening, you know, what happens if someone experiences a sudden economic shock? 40% of Americans today, if faced with an unexpected expense of $400, they either have to sell something or, or borrow money to be able to cover it. That was the path we were on even before COVID, right? And all COVID has done is further accelerate these disparities in ways that really highlight just the layers of impact in which people are, are economically left behind, right? So we're talking about individuals and small businesses, which are the lifeline of many economies that, that are being left behind. So, you know, we're talking about, to your point, large scale systemic issues, which cannot be solved solely by governmental or, or social sectors. There's a responsibility for all of us who participate in the financial ecosystem to, to help improve this. And, and you know, and, and one of the ways that, that those of us who are participants can help to do this is by providing more options and access for people to build, manage, and grow their money. So, you know, in, in the context of PayPal or FinTech, that means digitizing transactional processes, right? That makes, in turn, financial services more affordable for folks, convenient, secure. That helps to improve the financial health of the millions of people, for example, that use our products. And, and that's in furtherance of driving that type of financial inclusion for, for many who've been left behind. So I, I mentioned before, you know, leaving behind small business owners, right? And that they are the, the lifeblood of, of many uh, uh, economies. We need to enable more people to become entrepreneurs, right? Provide them with support to build and grow their businesses in an increasingly digital economy. I often think about, you know, if you were a bookseller 40 years ago, you have your brick and mortar shop and you sell your books out of your store. Today, if you want to be competitive in an increasingly digital economy, you need to be able to think about how do I broaden my reach? How do I have an online presence? And whereas your strength may be with respect to selling books, it might not be in the digital solutions that enable you to have an online presence. And so when I think of, of an organization like ours you know, at, at PayPal, that means increasing access and financing for these types of businesses. It means creating digital solutions and, and commerce tools that allow right, businesses to reimagine how they reach their customers. And again, that's how you then ensure that you know, a critical component of the American you know, financial ecosystem is being brought along as we digitize, right? So what we're really talking about is economic empowerment, right? Even through simple things. And, and you know, it's an inherent right to be able to earn, grow, and move your money with dignity and with options, choice, and, and, and access, right? And, and now with mobile devices, what's interesting is so many people across the globe essentially have the power of a, a banking branch in their hands. And, and I, I know, you know, we often talk about uh, economic empowerment. I, I think it's also important to acknowledge what I talk about is a kind of ever-present yet invisible economic disempowerment that so many of us face and, and how that shows up, right? So certainly there are the tangibles in terms of cost, right? How much more expensive it is to pay the fees and manage the movement of your money that disproportionately impact underserved communities when they are challenged because there is not access to, you know, traditional uh, means. Um, and so that, that, you know, that might mean more costly options, but there are also less visible in impacts. The economy of time and, and how lack of, of access to financial systems disparately impact underserved communities is a big one. And I'll, I'll give you an example. 
It's one of my favorite anecdotes because it, it serves as both an illustration of this point and coincidentally for me, the moment uh, that I had this instant connection between PayPal uh, and our mission and my own lived experience uh, and, and recognizing, I think, the potential uh, for for our company and, and fintechs to, to improve financial circumstances in communities like the ones that I grew up in. It's maybe March or April of 2017. I, I just joined the company and our CEO, uh, Dan Schulman, uh, was highlighting in, uh, in all hands that he'd taken on the experience of, of standing in the line at a check casher, right, to understand the experience of our customers. And he'd mentioned, he said, you know, I saw folks standing in line for long periods of time to cash their check. And then after that, standing in another line to then pay their bills. And it hit me like a ton of bricks because as a kid, that was my own experience. I'm, I'm from the Bronx. I had parents who initially began their journey outside the traditional financial system. And I dreaded every Friday. We would literally stand online for long periods of time to cash the check and then go and pay the electric bill, right? Same place, new line, right? That economy of time, the freedom to be able to move your money in a more convenient way, th those are the types of, that's the type of economic disempowerment that we don't always recognize that, that occurs for folks every day, right? And so when you're thinking about digitized payment alternatives, bill pay alternatives, being able to do that in the power of your, your, your mobile phone, right? That is transformative for folks. The other one I'll call out is the economy of trust right? Trust is the bedrock of, of economic activity. If you're looking for folks to entrust their hard-earned wages with you, they need to believe that you're going to keep their money safe, uh, make their access to their money convenient, and give them flexibility and options in terms of how to manage it. And it's really this latter piece around, around trust that, that informs the behaviors for many around you know, what, what, they, what they do with their money, whether or not they, they entrust it to a financial institution or, you know, keep it under their mattress, so to speak. And I know that that seems like an outdated reference um, about, you know, kind of putting your money uh, under your mattress, but there are analogous, you know, practices, right? And I, I think of my own experience, there's this concept of, of SUSU, which is like this informal savings club that, that arises in, in different African and Caribbean cultures, where essentially every payday, uh, folks take a certain portion of their pay, they give it to the person who's entrusted as, so to speak, the head of the informal savings club. And someone in that circle gets paid out every month a massive amount of money, right? Based on the parts that all the other participants put in. Many a Christmas, many a tuition bill as a kid was paid through that. But that also can be risky, right? And that's again, because of trust, right? The lack of trust in formal financial systems were often uh, required to think of other alternatives, right? And so hope that that answers your question probably more than you wanted. Uh, in terms of, of how I think of these things and why it's important for us to really focus on, uh, you know, certainly economic empowerment, but also acknowledge what disempowerment looks like for folks and how do we improve those circumstances as well. Yes, uh, thank you for that. You did answer my question and, and you laid the foundation for, you know, the purpose of financial inclusion. And I loved your phrasing it as economic empowerment and in the dignity aspect. And, and of course, you know, payments, the history of payments themselves is based on trust, you know, deciding what is it worth exchanging, whether it be bartering for sticks or uh, rabbit pelts or what have you, you know, it was all a matter of trust. One thing you said about, you know, the story about your mom and 
and how that affected you from a payments perspective. You know, I remember one one new innovation that's out today that really is personal for me is uh, the ability to prepay a utility bill. And this new innovation that connects uh, maybe someone's smart meter with their mobile device and their utility app and says, hey, last year you spent, you know, $25 on your electricity this week. So if you if you can't afford to pay one lump sum at the end of the month, you can chip away at it. And you might even, you know, create more pride in saying, well, okay, I can turn these lights off or, or not run um, as many loads of in the dryer, I can hang my clothes or something like that. And in not having as a single mom, I grew up in that in that single mom household for a portion of it. And I remember the bill collectors calling and I remember it getting very stressful when there was these big lump sums. And so I think that giving people that optionality, like you were talking about, the different ways to pay. And in addition to that, you talked about you know, more than just the cost itself, but the, the time as a, as a function of cost. You know, uh, some of these utility solutions, bill pay solutions, you can now pay a lot of bills in line at, you know, your local grocer or at your local convenience store. We're seeing a lot of innovations today. And uh, something that we've been thinking about at the Fed, I know you know, this realization about how uh, our fellow citizens are sitting on the sidelines of prosperity. There's also this increasing digital economy and specifically digital payments. And even though there's a rapid adoption of digital payments, there are still a large portion of the population who rely on cash as their main means of conducting transactions. And in many cases, those cash-reliant consumers are uh, vulnerable populations. And you know, we don't want this digital growth, which can be very beneficial to further marginalize these vulnerable populations from the economy, now a very digital economy. And so there, there is a growing divide between the digital payments economy and those who still rely largely on cash. And so that's where we kind of have focused our research on payments inclusion. And we define that to mean ensuring that payment systems remain open for everyone and making sure that everyone has fair and equitable access to those payment options. And then three, that everyone can use those payment options fairly and equitably. And that's, you know, taking one bill payment and making creative ways to pay things, right? With all this innovation that's happening, like what is the responsibility of the payments ecosystem specifically as these financial systems evolve? It's a great question. Look, I I, I like you and, and the example you, you gave, like I, I marvel at the possibility of how technology has truly helped to enrich the financial experiences and create access for so many, right? And to your point, it's, it's helpful and can be a tool in, in addressing the large scale disparities that we talked about, you know, uh, earlier uh, in the, the discussion. You know, I, I, I made the comment around having the power of a banking branch in, in your hand through the use of mobile devices and, and similarly, you know, how to engage in commerce in ways that were unimaginable years ago. You talked about the bill pay experience um, from the power of just that same device through digitization, and it is mind-blowing. But, you know, specifically, in, I think the role of uh, the ecosystem is to design inclusive products, right? It is incumbent on organizations to be cognizant on exactly 
what it is they are solving for, for whom, right? And ensuring that those innovations are, are closing those gaps, right? And, you know, at the same time, right, those innovations don't have to be large scale, you know, transformational, never before seen products. They can also be smart and thoughtful improvements on an existing design that enables more more access and reach. So you gave that great example about not having to do this lump sum payment. It can be broken out into parts and, and track through that. And when I think of, uh, you know, improvements on on the design at PayPal, we have a, a product you know, that I'm proud of among the many, uh, that, that is called our, our PayPal working capital product. And this is a, a good example of, of thinking smart and, and helping to, to close the gap. You know, this is an ideal service for enabling underserved small business owners to access capital, right? So PayPal today reaches about 10 million American small businesses. And the focus here is on providing capital fast, right? Within, you know, it has impressive, you know, geographic and demographic uh, reach, um, but but essentially fueling growth for these businesses who need that capital infusion, right? Uh, for example, maybe to restock your inventory or, or other things. And, and, and here's what's unique about it. And this is where I talk about just improvement on the existing design. So it is a loan, right? But in this case, the merchants choose how they repay, right? And it's based on a share of their sales. They decide 1% or 5%. But a share of your sales to automatically deduct as, as payments, one that makes managing cash flow easier for them. But two, right, it ties us to their success, right? And again, it's turning on its head how you think of lending, right, to enable your customer and not necessarily just an, an income source for you. Um, other transformative things is, is, you know, for example, the merchants pay a fixed affordable fee when you apply, right? The loan primarily based on your PayPal account history. So there's no credit check required, right? Doesn't affect your credit score. Again, thinking about who you're serving, right? A particular demographic that may have not had access to traditional credit lending spaces. And then receiving that funding in minutes, right? So it's not time consuming as an application process uh, or there's no check of your financial you know, history. The reason why I mention this is it's, incumbent upon us as, as an organization to think about if in fact small businesses are being so disproportionately impacted, what are some of the ways in which we can better serve and or provide injection of capital more quickly to them, right? And what is it also that we're solving for in this context? The reality is that after 2008, the financial crisis, there are a number of banking deserts, right? Where these amounts, uh, you know, less than $25,000, let's say, right, somewhere in, in that ballpark, which can be transformational for a small business, those types of loans had essentially all but dried up for them, right? But we were able to build something that, as an alternative, provided flexibility, right, for, for these businesses as they needed that, that, that injection. I use this as an example to say responsible innovation, taking into account who you're serving has to be, I think, the responsibility of, of the financial ecosystem. And it doesn't mean always these huge transformative technological uh, 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 advancements. They can truly just be smart, thoughtful improvements on an existing design, right, that enrich your customers' lives. I will also add that that innovation has to be done with regulatory considerations at the forefront, right? Making sure that, you know, whatever innovations, regardless of the degree of them, 
that they don't compromise the integrity of the financial system. They can't come at the expense of, of consumer protection. And that also at the same time, you know, we foster these proactive and transparent relationships with, with regulators right, around the world to, to support, you know, these types of, of efforts. And so I'll, I'll pause there for a moment uh, because I want to make sure I answered your question. And I know you mentioned a fair bit around uh, the exclusion of, of, of folks in terms of bridging the divide for the digital divide. Yeah. And I mean, you did answer my question and really kind of opened up that um inclusive design process being so fundamental and challenging the ways that we innovate. You know, things like who who are you designing for? Who are your test populations? And are payment companies, are we innovating for the customers we have now or the customers that we can't quite reach and those needs we haven't really uncovered yet? So yeah, we have talked about how the exclusion is happening here in the United States and you know, where discussions and decisions need to be directed towards payments inclusion and, and how we innovate. I think that we hope that we're presenting by posing the problem this way, that we are offering policymakers you know, a new approach to financial inclusion that focuses on options and and really highlighting those who are relying on cash and what are the barriers, whether they're perceived or real barriers. So we know there's a, a lot of solutions today that are attacking this inclusion issue. And, you know, I, I love the example you gave with the the lending optionality and, and having success be shared and um, having the product almost, you know, morph to the changing circumstances, right? And um, I think about other innovations like delivering payroll and wages faster. And so having that shift and having that less volatile income cycle, you know, may open up a lot of opportunities. And then I mentioned the bill payment issue with the prepaying and how that can change someone's life. But I kind of want to turn our focus, like you said, to regulation and policy None of these solutions are ubiquitous or available to all, or they don't know they're available. Um, Maybe they're state by state. And so in some cases, there are actually laws and policy or regulation that inhibits the expansion of some of these solutions. Um, For instance, you know, some states are not allowing to prepay utilities in some cases, or thinking that a, uh, an advanced wage product could be more of a lending product and having more compliance burden to go along with it. Um, so we see a lot of solutions that are out there, even doing like workarounds in some cases. And in that in that case, we are actually might be limiting security and con- consumer protections, like you brought up. So it's a balance. And so you know, as how do we kind of coalesce around these regulations like security and consumer protection, while keeping that innovation you know train moving? Right. Right. No, it's a it's a great question. You know, I. I think it is uh, important for us to to evolve, right, and, and potentially even recast the the dynamic with respect to industry and regulatory relationships. I, I think our regulators first and foremost do, and as is appropriate, you know, they supervise and as necessary, you know, leverage enforcement to ensure that that industry is operating in a way that protects its customers. But it can't be the only way in which you know industry and regulators engage, which which often can happen. Uh, and that does a disservice to, you know, the most important stakeholders in, in this ecosystem, which are the customers, right? 
So, you know, there, there's a need for industry to be transparent with regulators about you know, developments and innovations on the horizon and, and engage them. Uh, but in addition, it's also important for, for regulators to be able to signal receptivity for industry transparency when it's not happening uh, in, in the context of supervisory or, or enforcement contexts. And I recall a conversation with a regulator about two years or so ago where he said to me, you know, you have to remember that we're one regulatory body and there are hundreds of you. And the pace of, of evolution is staggering, right? And he was referring to, to the licensees. And, and the potential impact, right, to consumers is just growing. And while you are all providing, you know, different variations of products in the absence of insight as to what you're doing, right, I don't have an appreciation of, of whether or not our supervision is appropriately tailored, right? And, and in essence, it was, uh, you know, you know, help us help you, so to speak, right? Which is, you know, engage us. And, and I found that that sentiment is not unique, um, but there aren't always formal structures for it. Uh, we, we, we try to do our best in, in creating the opportunities to engage with our regulators, and we've always found it uh, to be helpful to do so. To your, to your point around, you know, coalescing around consumer protections, you know, for industry right now, I think that that means us having some North Star principles that are unwavering, again, when we center, you know, the, the customer, the consumer. And and by by the way, this is all based on a supposition as it is, you know, with with us as, you know, PayPal, that inclusion and focus on our customers is that's the, you know, that inclusive way that that's the heart at the heart of what we're doing. But But primarily that means accepting that because of the scale and the pace of innovation, that there will be products that we put out in the marketplace that do not yet have the benefit of regulatory frameworks or even oversight. So to that end, there has to be a shared responsibility to ensure that we are offering products to consumers with some of these North Stars in mind, right? So I'll note one or two, you know, from my view, transparency and education, right? Uh, for a, you know, a customer, they need to understand what's the product, how does it operate, right? How does the fee structure work? What are my alternatives? How are my funds protected, right? Uh, what happens if something goes wrong? You know, it, enable the customers, in essence, to be able to make an informed choice around whether that, that product is right for them. And the other is what you touched on at the very start of this, Jessica, is, is fair access and, and fair and equitable treatment, right? Ensuring that the factors that go into determining who's approved for the product that you're offering, as well as how is discretion applied in the treatment of the customers throughout the life cycle of their experience, that that's based on fairness principles, again, with an eye towards inclusion and creating greater access. And whereas there might be products, again, because of the scale of innovation that we're offering in which there aren't formal regulatory frameworks today, the principles are out there, right? You know, I tie this back to a previous comment that I made around, in, you know, engaging with regulators beyond the dynamic of, of supervision and enforcement, because in this context, you know, if industry is in a position to operate prior to formal regulatory frameworks being in place, and we're doing so with some of these North Stars that I called out, you know, transparency and education or fair access and, and fair and equitable treatment, there is an opportunity for industry to share learnings, data, insight that can help inform the regulatory frameworks that could emerge, right, and ensure that they're appropriately tailored. And that dynamic is critical to, to responsible innovation. And so if anything, I, I think that that's, that's the obligation. It's a symbiotic relationship between industry and, and, and regulators at, at this junction to ensure that collectively we can serve the customers. Yeah, I, I really hear what you're saying about those guiding principles and ensuring that we can, you know, organize around that as we collaborate and educate 
with those guiding principles in mind. You and I met actually because you're serving as a member on the Special Committee on Payments Inclusion, and and here's a space where we've kind of come together um, across uh, industry stakeholders. There's regulators involved and consumer advocates and academics and and fintechs, uh, banks as well, and you know, we, we're there to talk about how payments innovation can advance economic mobility and resilience. And through this research, we want to understand how digital payments can actually provide sufficient incentive for cash-based consumers to change their behavior. And we want to make sure that we identify the unique challenges that might be inhibiting their desire to change because um, they're an active participant as well, we have to remember, <laughs> um, as we're talking about collaboration on the on the regulation and innovation side. It's it's what are they thinking about this space? And there are real digital divide issues still at play here. When you think about making a payment, you have to have the basics of technology to facilitate that transaction. But there's also at play social norms theories and social pathology theories that uh, meaning that some hesitation to adopt these technologies, these digital payments are based on real barriers and some are really based on perceived barriers. And um, we really need to, the committee, I think we're really interested in seeing where those differences are because we can change real things, but for the perceived barriers, we can't, we can't not validate those reasons. Um, we know that being unbanked in many cases is a rational decision for uh, someone based on their particular, you know, financial health in life, um, based on fees or, or whatever the case may be, balance minimums and things like that. So it's a rational decision. So what this kind of tells us is that there's likely big gaps in education and literacy, and I think that we always kind of want to bring that along as well. Uh, what are your thoughts to kind of round us out about how we might think about adoption and education going forward? No, Jessica, one, agree with everything that, that you've said. And, you know, th- there is uh, this perception uh, because of, of the growth, right, of financial technology and, and digital adoption that that it is um, far maybe exceeding cash or, or encroaching on exceeding cash uh, today in terms of you know folks who are leveraging cash. The reality is that eighty five percent of the world still runs on cash, uh, and and when you are looking at emerging and developing countries, that number is more to ninety percent, if not north of that. You know all the signs, yes, are are pointing towards you know rapid increasing digitization. Folks estimate that in the next five years, you know, we'll, we'll see six billion, you know, smartphone users. And to that end, the mobile device is key. I talked earlier about having the power of a banking branch uh, in, in your hand through your mobile device. But what is interesting, and, and I'll draw my own personal experiences for a moment, uh, as I, I mentioned, my parents are, are actually are from West Africa. And when you go to many sub-Saharan African countries, right, and you look for a brick and mortar bank to walk in and get, let's say, a revolving line of credit or other types of payment services, you'd be hard pressed, right? Um, there wasn't a lot of traditional banking infrastructure in a lot of developing and emerging countries. So now what we're seeing is you're, we're going from cash economies, right, and totally jumping over the traditional financial systems 
into now the possibility of mobile device and digitization adoption, right? So when we talk about even globally, the concept of uh, adoption, yeah, you're, you're bridging a significant gap, right? For, for folks, even in terms of institutions. But, but you know, the reality is in, in the U.S. as well, where, where, you know, again, a lot of folks have been left out of traditional financial systems. Again, we're talking about that gap too, right? In, in a very different way. The reality is though, right, that people do desire today for whatever reasons, some of which you've pointed out, payments experiences <clears throat> or financial services experiences, you know, in different contexts, right? So thinking about payments, for example, you know, there are people who are looking for seamless integration of, of commerce across marketplace platforms, online merchants, you know, mobile directly, in-store safely, social media, other, you know, other contexts. And it's important for us to acknowledge that there are many use cases today, right? Good, bad, or indifferent for folks. I think about PayPal. And one of the things that I think we've done successfully is that we've realized that there is no monolith of consumers, right? In order to succeed in serving consumers, it's important to understand who they are, what they're telling you they need, and understand the, the social barriers. And to your point, the pathology that informs those needs, which is why, for example, Across all of those contexts I'd mentioned, whether it be, you know, marketplace, online, in-store, we make sure we have solutions for folks who have that need, right? And, and, and that is important for us to do too, because one of the things that you called out uh, earlier in the discussion is the fact that there is a digital divide today, right? And that the digital, you know, transformation that's happening, we need to be able to ensure we're being thoughtful, because we don't want to further exacerbate the, the inequality that exists within our, our system. And by the way, the reality is, is that digital transactions are more affordable and do create greater access and can be more secure than cash. And so to the extent we can drive that type of adoption, absolutely, uh, that makes sense. That's why we, we you know take care to ensure we get the right design that can drive easier adoption across different demographics and continue to engage with our stakeholders to make sure we're getting that right, right? But we are dealing with, um, to your point, other uh, socioeconomic factors that do create a bridge for folks. And I talked earlier about the economy of trust. There are people who still are reluctant to engage in digital payments because they're concerned uh, about privacy or general protection of their financial data, right? But that being said, you know, we also know there's a growing interest in folks wanting to have access to broader commerce and payment options, right? And again, talking about optionality. So, you know, being inclusive and providing access means giving people comfort that there doesn't have to be this trade-off between having access to global commerce and worrying about your data, right? And, and that means, you know, strong privacy and information security controls that has to be integral, to the operations of your company if you are supporting digital payments uh, in commerce. But at the same time, and again, I'm thinking about this in the context of, of PayPal, it's understanding that folks want to be able to engage in the, the economy in different ways and being able to provide that optionality. Funny story, I, I'm going back uh, a year or two where I was actually at a conference, so it had to have been two years because I was actually at a conference. I was actually outdoors. Um, but at an in-person conference, a regulator came up to me, saw that I was with PayPal and said, listen, last week I was going to buy this t-shirt that I've been looking for forever. The problem is I didn't know who this merchant was. I wasn't sure about their website entirely, but I really needed this shirt. 
And I was, you know, I was, I was 30, 70, you know, and she was essentially leaning towards not getting this t-shirt. She said, and then at the end of it, I saw the PayPal button, right? And then I knew, I knew I could buy that t-shirt. It was, it was actually pretty interesting, pretty funny. And, and the feedback she gave is because she knew that her transaction would be protected, right? And that's because we have 20 years of tokenizing transactions and underlying financial data, uh, which makes the transaction secure, right? And so for us, it's about getting that message out there, for example, that we encrypt every transaction, right? Those are the things that we have to make sure in the user experience is also clear to our customers. So to your point, you know, there, there is an, an element of mistrust, I think, to be able to account for that. We have to do a combination of, yes, educating, but also still offering our customers choices. We have to meet them where they are. That's fabulous. Uh, I like that example. It really highlights how, um, you know, repeated experiences can build trust and standards around these features and functionality. And and I think features and functionality is a is a great area of opportunity in education. And you kind of like uncovering, demystifying these features and functionality, so it doesn't feel so magical when a payment happens, you know, and using similar, you know, definitions and nomenclature around the the types of providers and the types of accounts we have and whether it's offered by a, a, a traditional bank or a non-bank, you know, that we, that we ex- are clear and conspicuous in the way we describe these financial services. And I think with standards around that type of education, I think you know, we might be able to pull down some of those barriers, both in the in the regulatory environment, the policy maker environment, and and for consumers. So, well, Andrea, this has been a great conversation. Your expertise and passion for the topic adds so much value to the industry, and I, it was my pleasure talking with you today. It was my absolute pleasure being here. Thank you so much, Jessica. Thank you. And this podcast will be archived on the Atlanta Fed page under Economy Matters. And be sure to look for future publications coming from the Special Committee on Payments Inclusion. And I hope you all have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. This has been a production of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. For more podcasts on this topic and others, please visit the Atlanta Fed's website at atlantafed.org.